welcome back to I Just Want to Talk About the Bible. If this is your first time joining us, let me just say welcome to you and say that I'm glad that you're here. Uh, my name is Christian Keeter, and I am on staff at an international discipleship ministry called Mentoring Men for the Master, which is based out of North Carolina, which is where I live with my beautiful wife and our two wonderful daughters. Now, as the title for this episode would imply, today we are in part four of a series uh, entitled Meditating on the Scriptures. So if you are just now joining us for the first time, I would I would encourage you to pause this episode and go back and listen to parts one through three because there is definitely a building. I will be referring back to um, some of the previous stuff in the other episodes, some, but part one of the series is just vital. It is it is the most important part of, of this entire conversation on meditating on the scriptures because it is about the Holy Spirit's role in taking the word of God and making it real to us. It's where he enlightens the eyes of our hearts. It's where he will give us revelation on a scripture and it becomes real. It becomes, it becomes real. It comes with power. It's like we, we agreed with it beforehand, but we, we really believe it in our hearts now. And that is something that we should be seeking each and every day when we open our Bibles it's not just about reading the Bible. It's not just about checking it off our list. It's about hearing from the Lord. And so this is that's something so important. So if you haven't heard that, I want to encourage you to pause, go listen to those. And, uh, and this episode will still be here when you come back. So, um, But for this episode, we are going to be discussing another tool, just like we have in parts two and three, that will help us grow in our ability to meditate on the scriptures. But before I get into the actual content of this episode, there's a few things I want to um, say by, by way of introduction. Um, first, uh, in the previous episode, part three, we talked about, uh, different contexts in the Bible and how understanding these contexts and, um, and applying them to our Bible study and Bible reading can help us to understand what the text is really saying. And if we understand what it's saying, then we can obey it, then we can do it. Um, and so one of the ones that I talked about was the literary context and, talking about different genres. And one of the genres I talked about was the epistle or the New Testament letter. And when my wife and I were talking about this, uh, the content of that episode after the fact, uh, she reminded me of a book that she and I had read a few months back. It's called The Lost Letters of Pergamum. The Lost Letters of Pergamum by Bruce W. Longenecker. And I'll write that out in the uh, episode description. I would totally recommend anybody read it. It is a phenomenal book. It's a great read. It's highly entertaining, and so it's it's easy just to read through it. But what it is is, it is a a collection of um, fictional letters. It takes place in AD ninety two, which is of course going to be during the New Testament era, and um, it is written between a guy named Antipas and the Gospel writer Luke. And so it's broken down into letter collections where they correspond back and forth. I don't want to spoil the book for you. But what's really cool that um, what Bruce Longenecker does is he has an appendix in the back of the book where for each letter collection he has it broken down where it says, this part is entirely fictional, this part is speculative but possible, and then this part can be defended historically. And so even as you're reading it, after you complete each letter collection, you can look in the back and you can see... um, what is actually historical. And so why am I bringing this up right now? Well, this book, I recommend it for two reasons. The first is going to be that it just, the reason why I picked it up initially is because it really helps wrap your mind around what the New Testament world was actually like. 
And so it puts a lot of skin on when you're reading the Bible. It makes a lot of things make sense because you're getting, oh, this is how this time period worked. This is what Roman society was like. This is, you know, and so it really, it really does help with that. But the reason why I'm sharing it right now is because since the entire, the entire book is collections of letters, it is, um, it teaches you and it's written in like New Testament style letters because it reflects the letter writing style of the time. It teaches you how to read the letters of the New Testament better. Like I said last time, it can sometimes be our tendency just to sit down and read one chapter a day, um, which is which is okay, of course. But when you're getting to the letters, like Philippians, for example, Philippians is four chapters long. If you're to sit down and read one chapter a day, it took you four days to get through the letter. However, this letter, since it's a letter, would have been read in its entirety from start to finish. And then maybe the, the recipients of it would go back and read specific portions of it, revisit it, um, meditate on certain parts in particular. But the point is that it would have been read from start to finish. And so this book actually really helps you to develop the skill of reading the genre of epistle, of a letter. In fact, um, my wife decided after reading this book to just start reading through all the New Testament epistles. And so I know it's been very beneficial to her. It's been very beneficial to me. Um, and I was, you know, it's, little, it's one of those books where you're a little sad when you put it down because this is such a good book. It's not that long. And so I, I would just recommend it to anybody. I, I was actually, I originally uh, heard about it from uh, Dr. Tim Mackey, whom I've mentioned before. He's He's one of the um, Bible Project guys, if you guys know them, but he mentioned it in one of their podcasts, and um, and just the way that he was describing it really intrigued me, and it's it's a it's a phenomenal read. And speaking of the Bible Project, I want to give credit where credit is due. I am hugely indebted to them. They have helped me see and understand a lot of. Um, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about, they've put a lot of these tools in my hands so that I've begun to start noticing it whenever I've read the Bible. I've begun to think in terms of um, of genre and, and context, and I, I've begun to think in terms of just these tools that we that we have that have really enriched my Bible study. And so, like I said, I'm going to give credit where credit is due. Dr. Tim Mackey at The Bible Project um, has been very helpful to me in learning how uh, to to do a lot of this stuff that we're talking about. And so you've probably already heard of them. They make short animated films that explain biblical um, concepts or do word studies. And they have a podcast and a bunch of really good resources. So returning to this episode, um, I know this is a long introduction and you might've skipped past it. And you know, if you have more power to you, I get that, totally get that. Um, but I, uh, one, one more thing I want to say before we get into the content is this. Uh, and this is kind of one of the thoughts in my mind behind this series on meditating on the scriptures and using these tools to study the Bible. Just because someone uses scripture doesn't make them scriptural. This is very important. It's just because someone uses scripture doesn't make them scriptural. And what I mean is this, anybody can take a scripture out of context and twist what it means to make it mean something entirely different than what it originally meant. And so I could, for, for example, if you were to go to a um, three churches websites, a Protestant, a Jehovah's Witness, and a Mormon, and you go to their statements of beliefs page and you look at what they say about Jesus. All three of them will say something completely different about Jesus. Um, they, or at least when you begin to do a little study, all three of those groups believe something com completely different. And so, you know, um, the, but all of these things, all of these different websites, they'll have scriptures 
associated with why they believe that. And so it's like, well, what do we do with this? People are saying completely different things, but they're all using scripture to back it up. And so that is something that we are addressing in this series. It's important to have these tools so that we can do the study ourselves, so we can go to the text ourselves, so we can see what the Bible says ourselves. And 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 just just because somebody's using Bible verses doesn't necessarily mean that they're right, um, or that they know what they're talking about, really. And so even with myself, don't just trust me. Don't just trust me because I have a, a podcast or something like that. Dude, check what I say. Go to the Bible. I want you to scrutinize what I say and to do the study yourself because two things will happen. One, it'll just develop the skills that you need to be able to study the Bible. Two, it'll solidify in your own heart what I'm sharing with you. You'll see that, oh, okay, he is talking about what the Bible says here, and I've seen it for myself now. I'm not just hearing it secondhand. So, but yeah, I'm not afraid of that scrutiny, and I encourage you to do that. Absolutely, go to the scriptures. And so you might have heard of the Bereans. Um, the Bereans, the uh, Berea was a is a town, one of the places that Paul went to on one of his missionary journeys. He had been chased out of Thessalonica by the Jews there who didn't like him. So then he goes to Berea and he starts talking about Jesus in the synagogue. And it says the Jews there were noble, more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica. And they, they listened to him. They heard what he said. But then it said they went back and examined the scripture themselves to see what Paul was saying, see if what he was saying was true. And then they therefore believed because what Paul was saying was true. You can read about the Bereans in Acts chapter 17. And so I'm just encouraging you to be a Berean. We need to be Bereans. So, really long introduction. So let's get into the content today. So what is the tool that we're going to be developing today um, when it comes to how to meditate on the scriptures? It's this. It's identifying repetition in the Bible. Identifying repetition in the Bible. This is something that you've probably already noticed, even if it's only the repetition of certain numbers. Like, I'm sure as you've been reading the Bible, you're like, oh, there's the number three again. There's the number seven again. Here comes another 12. Ooh, there's 40. You know, and um, it's it's very, uh, these are very repeated numbers. And, uh, and certain of these numbers will show up in, in similar circumstances. Um, and so, uh, for example, it rained 40 days and 40 nights. Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days. Um, Elijah wandered in the wilderness for 40 days. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. And so we see that this this repetition of 40, and it's kind of connected to um, uh, a, uh, a time of trial or... Um, or something along those lines. And so that's just an example using a, a number. Um, and so, but the point is this, when we see repetition in the Bible, it's supposed to catch our eye. We're supposed to notice it. Um, I remember when I first became a Christian, I was reading through the Bible and I struggled because I saw the number 40 repeated and I'm like, oh, 40 sure is showing up a lot. And then the thought flashed through my mind. I wonder if this book is just made up. And then I beat myself up and felt guilty forever and ever because I was like, how could I have such a thought? But I, I, I don't think I should have felt guilty. I think I should have just leaned in more and be like, okay, it is repeated. Why is it repeated? You know, and what, what is, what am I supposed to be getting from this? And so I think I was actually leaning into a good direction, but I just let, um, I just let this, this weird feeling of like guilt, like, oh, how could I question the Bible? And I wasn't even questioning the Bible. I was just thinking, you know, and so, uh, but I was beginning to notice repetition. And so if you notice repetition, that's a good thing. And so I'm going to go through a few examples 
And what I want to say as far as repetition goes is that a lot of times when you're reading and you'll see something where you're like, oh yeah, this reminds me of another story, the, 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 you'll notice that two accounts will be running kind of on parallel lines where it's like, okay, this sounds very similar to another story, but then the one story will take a sharp turn, an unexpected turn. And so it's like, it'll be repetition, 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 and then big difference. And that big difference from the other story that there's like repetition from, where there's a, an obvious connection to, that is supposed to catch our attention. And it's supposed to communicate something to us. So let me give you some examples, because that's going to be the easiest way to do this. So 2 Samuel chapter 5, David is finally been anointed king of, of, of all Israel. He's been running from King Saul for quite some time. Um, Saul dies in battle, and he is officially anointed king. Now, when this happens, the Philistines decide, you know what, it's time to attack. Let's attack. And so I want to start reading in 2 Samuel chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. And as I read it, I'm just going to read the whole way through. It's not long at all. Um, see if you can notice the repetition when I'm reading. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, and when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up, go around to their rear, and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him, and struck down the Philistines from Geba to, Ge to Gezer. So, um, relatively short account, and the, the repetition in this story is pretty obvious, and the, I mean, the author says came up yet again, like he says again. So you see the repetition just by the usage of the words like again. So what's, what happens? So the Philistines two times spread out to attack David in the exact same valley, Rephaim. So the first time they come and they spread out in the valley of Rephaim and David inquires of the Lord. And he says, let's see, what did David say? David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord says, yep, go, go on up. And so then he goes and he wins. So now, the again, the exact same circumstance happened. Exact same situation, exact same location, Valley of Rephaim, exact same enemy, the Philistines, with the exact same goal, to attack David. And so David sees this. And David, but David doesn't just go into battle. He inquires of the Lord, again, a second time. So we see this is repeated. However, this takes a different turn. The Lord's instructions to David the second time are, are completely different than the first ones. He doesn't just say, yeah, go and attack. He says, no, 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 go around, go around to the backside of this army. When you hear the marching in the tops of the trees, then go out for I've gone before you. And David does it and, and, gets, uh, and, and wins the victory. So what can we learn from this? That's great. That's cool. I think that sort of thing is awesome whenever I start noticing things like that. But again, we want to keep this um, down on an, um, a level where we can apply it. Joshua 
is interesting because I, why are we talking about Joshua all of a sudden? Bear with me here. Joshua does the opposite of what David does, and it's to his detriment. You remember the Battle of Jericho. He goes and fights at Jericho. He has this uh, conversation with the Lord beforehand. He gets instructions from the Lord. He obeys the Lord. And then he goes and the Lord knocks down the walls. Miraculously, they take the city. However, we know that from that city, a man stole some spoil. His name was Achan. And because there was sin in the camp, um, whenever Joshua went to attack the much smaller city of Ai, or Ai, um, they were defeated. They were defeated. So how is Joshua different than David? Joshua didn't stop to seek the Lord between Jericho and Ai. He sought the Lord before Jericho and God gave him instructions, but before the next battle, Joshua didn't stop to seek the Lord. David stopped and sought the Lord between the battles and got completely different instructions. If Joshua had paused to seek the Lord before the battle at Ai, the Lord would have surely said, there's sin in your midst, you need to purify that, otherwise I'm not going to go up with you to give them into your hand. And Joshua seeks the Lord after he loses the battle because he's like, what's going on? And, and then, you know, the Lord shows it to him. But Joshua could have avoided that. And, and, and there's another time in Joshua's life where he doesn't pause to seek the Lord. And he gets wound up, uh, roped into a very um, uh, unfortunate treaty or covenant. And so um, you can, you know, read all about that. But how does this connect with our life? This is how it connects with our life. If we find ourselves in a circumstance that's similar to one that we've been in before, even if God gave us direction in the previous circumstance, that doesn't mean that that direction in that circumstance applies to this circumstance, even though it's similar. It might. It may be. The Lord may say, yeah, do the exact same thing. But when we're in circumstances where we really need wisdom, where we're making decisions, um, where we, we need guidance, we got to be careful not just to be like, well, God told me to do this last time. So no, no, pause. Pause and seek the Lord. Now, obviously, if it's a matter of sin or not sin, he's going to tell you, don't sin. I mean, that, that's, that's obvious. But I'm talking about matters of wisdom. You see, with David, this was not a matter of sin. He wasn't like, but it was a matter of how should I fight this battle? I need wisdom. I need the direction from the Lord. I need his guidance. I need his protection. And so that's one thing. Um, that, that, is, that is one thing one thing we could learn from that and it's what how do we learn this by noticing repetition and differences that's interesting that's cool isn't it i think that's awesome so here here's another one um this one is not that one was very simple very simple it's all just in two little paragraphs right next to each other and sometimes it's really simple like that other times it's a bit more complex and you kind of have to look for it to notice it so shifting gears to another example jonah we are all pretty familiar with the with the character of Jonah. Um, now, I will say that most of the time we only talk about Jonah chapters one through three and not four, um, but we're familiar with how God had a prophet that he wanted to go to the city of Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria, um, and uh, for whatever reason, we don't actually learn why Jonah didn't want to do it until the end of the story, but he, he flees and he runs. So I'm going to read part of chapter one of Jonah and... Um, and we're going to see a really, really interesting parallel to this, a really interesting use of repetition with this. So I'm going to start reading in um, chapter one, and I might just start, I'm just going to start reading in, um, I'll start reading in verse four, but, um, but just remember, so God has told Jonah to go prophesy against Nineveh, and Jonah goes down, hops aboard a ship, and goes the complete opposite direction. So then beginning in verse 4, it says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, 
and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his god. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your god. Perhaps the god will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. So that's stopping in verse 10. So we, we know that from this point, what happens is Jonah says, you want the storm to stop? Then throw me into the sea. And they don't want to do it at first, but they cast him into the sea. And as soon as Jonah is thrown into the waters, the storm stops. And then, of course, we know the rest. The The huge fish comes, swallows him. He prays from inside the fish. He's spat up on the shore. He goes to Nineveh. He calls out against it. The Ninevites repent, and he gets mad about it. <laughs> but uh, but let me just flip over to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. So it's obviously one of the gospel accounts. We're talking about Jesus now. Mark chapter 4, 35 through 41. As I'm reading this, think about what we just read with Jonah. And think about what we're talking about with repetition. On that day, when evening had come, he, being Jesus, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. Uh, go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with him in the boat. They took him with them in the boat, excuse me, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So there are obvious parallels here. So what's, let's, let's point them out. So Jesus and Jonah are both aboard a boat. Obvious, obvious. But that's not noteworthy in and of itself. But as this unfolds, it does become noteworthy. They're both aboard a boat. While they're both in this boat, they both fall asleep in this boat. And while they're sleeping in this boat, a big storm comes, and it's thrashing the boat. They are both woken up by a terrified person on the boat. Jonah was woken up by the terrified captain. Jesus was woken up by the terrified disciples. So we see this is running parallel so far. This is... This is running parallel. And so as you're, you're reading this, you're like, I've heard this before. So as we're thinking about the book of Jonah, we're, we're kind of wondering, whoa, is Jesus about to be thrown into the sea? Like, is what's going to calm down this tempest, this great storm? Because for Jonah, it was him getting thrown overboard. But this is where the story takes a sharp turn. And this turn tells us something very important. Instead of Jesus being thrown overboard, Jesus gets up, himself rebukes the wind and the waves, and there's a great calm. And then the people in the boat with him are greatly afraid. They're, they, they, they fear, they're, they're greatly fearful. You know, and that's actually something um, back in Jonah, 
chapter uh, 1, verse 16. Let me just read this real quick because that's another parallel thing I want to point out. After they throw Jonah into the water and the great calm happens, it says, Then the men, the, the people on the boat, feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And so... That's another parallel. Both the people, once the calm has come, there's great, there's, there's fearing the Lord that's happening. But what is the difference? The difference is whereas Jonah was thrown into the water and then God stopped the tempest, Jesus get up, got up and stopped the tempest. Jesus did in this story what God did in the story of Jonah. Do you see what's being communicated here? What's being communicated is that Jesus is God. We have this sort of thing where it's like, okay, um, uh, this is something that only God can do. In the book of Jonah, God's, it's by implication, sent the storm. And then whenever Jonah was cast overboard, he calls the storm to cease. However, in this one, the person who causes the storm to cease is the one who was asleep in the boat, Jesus. What this is saying is that Jesus is God. That's what's being communicated. And then how much more sense does that now make when the disciples in verse 41 says they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is in the boat with us right now? And let me actually uh, include one more cross-reference to this um, so that you guys aren't like, now, Christian, you're just reading something into it. No, like, let me, I'm going to Psalm 107 right now. Psalm 107 is a, a really great chapter. In fact, we might do an entire episode just on Psalm 107. But a uh, really, really great psalm. And what it is is there are various people who find themselves in really adverse circumstances for a variety of reasons. But all of them, in their unique circumstances, cry out to the Lord, and he hears them, and he delivers them from their distress. Listen to one of these scenarios. This is Psalm 107, verse 23 and following. Some, just talking about people, some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord. His wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people, and praise him in the assembly of the elders. And so, looking down here, who calms the sea here? It says the Lord. It says the Lord calmed, calmed the sea. And by the way, um, when, whenever you're reading your Old Testament and you see the word Lord in small capital letters, L-O-R-D in caps, that is one way that the translators of the English Bible have communicated to us that that is when God's name is written. You know, God's name that he gave back to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3. And so uh, many modern scholars believe that the proper pronunciation of God's name would be Yahweh. Yahweh. And so Y-H-W-H are the English letters that correspond to the Hebrew letters, and I'm not going to go off into to, on a tangent on that. But anytime you see that written L O R D, Lord, in capital letters like that, that is the divine name. And so, who calms this? Yahweh. Yahweh calms the sea. The Lord calms the sea. And so we see Jesus doing the exact same thing in Mark four, and you see the disciples freaking out quite a bit about it. And it makes so much more sense. 
And these sorts of things are important because there are groups of people who will say that, you know, Jesus is a prophet, he was mighty, he was a teacher, um, but that he wasn't God. Um, for example, Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe that Jesus is equal with the Father um, in, uh, in, in this sense. They don't believe, they believe, let me rephrase that, they believe that he's lesser than the Father. Um, and there, there's lots of places in the New Testament that you could go to, such as where Jesus says, I and the Father are one, um, and he uh, and the Jews are going to stone him because they understood what he was saying. It's John 10.30. In John 8, he says, before Abraham was, I am, where he called himself, I am, which is a reference to Exodus 3. Or when he says um, to Philip, he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so we have passages like that that, in, in my opinion, are very clear. But then you have things like this that are slightly beneath the surface. But when you see them, they're even, they're just extremely powerful. Where you're like, he's doing things that only God Almighty can do. Jesus does things that only God can do. And, and and that just reveals his identity to us even more. So this is, it's very, like I said, it's very cool. Um, but it's also just very important. So I'm just encouraging guys to notice this thing of repetition in the Bible. Um, because a, many, many times there are things for us to see or something is very clearly being communicated to us that we're supposed to glean from the, the repetition. And so I'm just encouraging you not to overlook it. If you notice it, lean in and start asking questions. Start asking the Lord, God, is there something, is there something here that I'm not seeing, something I'm supposed to get? Um, because many times there is. And, um, and it can really enrich your Bible study. And so this is another tool, noticing repetition noticing repetition. And uh, and this requires reading a little bit more slowly at times and rereading, um, but that's good. The goal is not to read, per se. The goal is to understand. The goal is to hear from the Lord. The goal is to apply it and obey it. And, um, and that's the goal of what we're doing with these tools here. Um, so, uh, like I said, I will put the name of that book into the show notes of this episode. And by the way, I encourage you guys to check out the show notes because sometimes after the fact, I'll think of something I want to clarify or a correction I want to make after having listened to um, uh, the podcast. And uh, I'll just, instead of re-recording the whole thing, I'll just make a slight correction down in the notes. And so um, it's always helpful to go and check those. And as always, uh, feel free to email me at I just want to talk about at gmail.com if you have any questions, want to hear about something on an episode, or um, just want to say hey, that's always encouraging. But until next time, guys, God bless you. <laughs>